So you've got a bad student today. <laughs> what, to just today? Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I should just assume you probably had some bad ones in, I do. in real life. They, they, they just turn up. Uh, they're good students doing bad things, let's say. <laughs> well, I'm one of those today. Uh, today just didn't, didn't happen the way I thought it would. Had a lot of <laughs> stuff come up, so... Uh, I only did one of the readings for today, so oh. I'll be flying blind on the other one. With the blast shield down, you can't even see. How are you supposed to fight? <laughs> Great question. I guess you'll figure I it will, out. I will just be asking stupid questions. So, I mean, you know, really fulfilling my normal role on the, the show. The Don't worry. The force ghosts of Lennon and now <laughs> and Marx will guide you. And in this case, Rosa. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably going to be pissed at me, though. Like, you didn't read my shit again? What do you have against me? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so what we're doing today, we're talking again about our topic du jour, democratic centralism. But this time, coming at it from a more critical lens. Uh, so in that vein, we have readings from Rosa Luxemburg. We also have a reading from Emma Goldman, both of which kind of... Yeah, I think in different ways, kind of take some chunks out of or take some shots at the notions that are at the heart of democratic centralism. Okay, great. Uh, let's start with Rosa, because it looks like she was writing earlier in this case. We are reading Organizational Questions of the Russian Social Democracy by Rosa Luxemburg, parts one and two. This is available, as always, on Marxist.org, and we'll have links in the show notes. Yeah, so she's actually writing in 1904, so sort of a contemporary voice to Lenin's arguments when he's writing, you know, when we were talking about uh, him him sort of, uh, he, he was a little more obscure and stuff in his what is to be done, and it was very, looking back on it, it's like you have to really know what was going on for it to make sense, but it's still kind of that classic text, but she's, she's sort of responding to that milieu, and... One of the interesting things I think she lays out, which is very historical materialist of her, is emphasizing the difference between the situation that the German Social Democrats found themselves in in 1904 compared to that of the Russian, you know, revolutionary scene at their, you know, at the same time in their country. Gotcha. So I did read the first bit. So I got that. <laughs> so basically, she's talking about the fact that Russia, in a lot of ways, skipped the bourgeois democracy step that kind of traditional Marxism would uh, say comes before a revolution. And she's like, yeah, that's going to be weird. Like here in Germany, we like had that. And so that's going to have to be a different approach. Yeah, and there's there's a bunch of different factors involved in that. Uh, she emphasizes that basically the way that Papa Marx laid it out, it was supposed to be this almost Whig history sense of progress that bourgeois democracy had these fundamental shortcomings that were never going to get, you know, just stirred out in the pudding or whatever, but that it's, you know, it, it moved you in this direction of political rights for certain classes. And then those contradictions, the contradiction of having 
the dictatorship of one class over everyone else combined with the political freedoms that were ostensibly granted to everyone, they were going to resolve themselves by, well, if we actually are extending those political freedoms, then people are going to basically legislate their way into either into socialism or they're going to, the, the state is going to say, no, we said you were going to get these bourgeois rights, but you're not. And then there, there was going to be a general conflict. That's the original framework. I mean, that's, that's what we're given in orthodox Marxism. And Luxembourg's kind of like, I'm not, I mean, you guys are still in the club, but that doesn't look like what's happening in Russia. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And what's interesting is it not only was the case in, in Russia, but it was the case in, in China as well with Mao and in the case, I think, with Cuba. So, like, it kind of seems like Marx had it wrong in this one. I think that third worldism maybe has more legs than, than the original theory. Yeah. I think this is where Lenin definitely made his great contribution is seeing through, I think, the kind of, you know, progressivism sort of lens where Marx was coming from and, and, and evolving past that and saying, and, and doing, I mean, doing the work. This was, this was not just like asshole, you know, white guy in a bathtub <laughs> doing philosophy, <laughs> right? Like he seriously was in the library of London because he was in exile at the time. He was seriously going over economic reports, like wow. boring shit. Wow. What a dork. Put, yeah. Compiling all these tables together. <laughs> he didn't have Excel either. That's all by hand. Yeah. No, he had the receipts and he was like, look, this is how capitalism is kind of decaying. This is, this is how it's moving past what Marx's analysis said into this new, like, necro-capitalism and into this what he called imperialism which is where all of the feeding stock everything you could drain of its blood in capitalism's homeland it's it's gone it is drained mm -hmm. we have to go to other places it will do that it will do that at the you know as mal says the, at the barrel of a gun it will do that and make its will imposed that's imperialism, and I think that's that's the big change because that's when you get to the theory of it's not just going to be the most industrial advanced country. It's going to be among the among that club. It's not going to be some third world country, but it's going to be among those capitalist club. Which one did it the shittiest? Like was the weakest link on the chain? As he as he says. Yeah, I mean, which one bribed their people? the least amount and insufficiently and not enough people because I mean I think that's the real lure of traditional you know what you would call I guess liberalism or or you know trying to be progressive capitalism is you in the the core of the imperial states get to feel fine you get to feel okay you get to have yeah. nice things you get to you know be in a quote unquote democratic country like you can kind of fool yourself into thinking this is fine. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things you get to do. You get to, you know, say, oh, if uh, if this horrific tragedy were befalling me, what moral judgments would I pass? Mm -hmm. You get to sit back and play 
backseat quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the correct term is armchair quarterback, but yeah, you know, you know, that's or fine. <laughs> Monday morning quarterback is more of a temporal thing. I've heard that thing, one. You know, I've heard that one after the fact. But yeah, you get to say, well, I would have bravely, nonviolently, though, advocated mm-hmm. for Palestinian, you know, independence. And things like this, because you're in an empirical country. You don't have to worry about, like, ever that happening to you. Yeah, and it's really interesting, the thickness of that veil, the the, the persistency of that veil. Like, I was just watching uh, this documentary series called Big Vape. It's about, like, the rise and fall of Jewel, basically, and mm. just all the scandals in there. And, like, I was listening to these interviews with employees of Jewel and former employees. And they're like, yeah, I just thought we had really had a mission. And then basically a big tobacco came and took over the company after a certain point because they're like, Hey, like y'all are fucked. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we're kind of fucked. So let's just combine forces. And you know, the, there are all these like stories about these employees feeling betrayed and feeling like, I thought we were like a mission based company and shit like that. And I was just like, honey, I got bad news about every other company out there. <laughs> <laughs> They're also yeah. doing bad things. Jeez. Now, I do have this is this is more of a confessional thing, but I am able to do something that I've read about Lyndon Johnson being able to do. I'm only able to do it in the professional capacity. I cannot do this in interpersonal relationships because What about your dick in the bathroom? <laughs> I can't I can't do that. If you know me, all right, but if it's just like at the job, I mean, it's coming out. But <laughs> what I mean is uh interviews. Mm. So one of the superpowers that Lennon Johnson apparently had was the capability of convincing himself of beliefs that he needed to hold for certain amounts of time. Mm. So uh, his advisors and stuff would call them that he was working himself up. And so he'd be just basically pacing maniacally around a room, say, talking up and, and like doing one side of a conversation from this alien point of view. Like his aides knew this is not what he believed, but he was like saying these things as if it was like Lindy that he d- generally believed it. And he was spe- he was getting into character. Is how yeah. any method actor would describe this. <laughs> would would do this like relentlessly around, and then would didn't go out and embody this, you know, on the floor or in this meeting of whoever he was talking to, and he could totally do that, and then use you know use that completely to his advantage. Like I can do that in the context of a job interview. Like I can become <laughs> a good little worker. Yeah, I can. I can. <laughs> like I know what they want. I know what they don't want. Yeah, I yeah. can do that. <laughs> and and then on the end, you know, thirty minutes later, just you know, just shake it off like oh, that was gross. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> I and, feel like I need a shower. And I wonder just you know how many of us on some level have to cultivate this like you know build this sort of wall in our heads of being able to separate that. Totally, yeah. Because it's a diseased move we all have to do. But yep. Anyway, yeah, Rosa's saying shit's different. In Russia than it is in Germany. In addition, she kind of emphasizes that, not just like the economic sides of it, but the political. Yeah, who's this Bismarck guy? Is that Uh, Otto? Yeah, Otto von Bismarck, kind of the unifier, the Mm. consolidator of power in what becomes Germany. Cool. 
I mean, probably not cool. <laughs> it's not cool. Like Germany really struggles. Mm-hmm. Let's say to to put it lightly, struggles it lightly. with running its own, you know, unified country. Uh, you have World War One, Exhibit A. Not a great start. You know, there there are some conflicts, and the reason I put it so lightly is because you have Exhibit B, which is World War Two. I mean, that's worse. So. <laughs> If you find yourself starting two world wars in the same century after becoming a country, you might have fucked up somewhere. Yeah, there's this old uh, Norm Macdonald bit where he basically says that. He's like, we just shouldn't let Germany like, be a country. like Because <laughs> we had World once. War One, which was Germany versus the world. <laughs> it's like, you know, and so that plays out. And then it's like, and so then, you know, we end up with World War Two, which is, and you're not going to believe this, but... Germany versus <laughs> the world. <laughs> yeah, there are some allies, but the junior pa- partners. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, really stepped in it. Yeah, it was it was growing pains, shall we say? But I think the point there is that in Marx's analysis, when he talks about these uh, stages of history, kind of says when the bourgeoisie starts gaining ascendance. It does so by having to, it's compelled to put the proletariat in motion. It's like they have to use us. It's like, fuck, okay, fine, we're using votes now, and there's a lot of you, so wouldn't you want to team up with us? So there's there's more democratic reforms in that direction versus the czarist angle, which doesn't have that. It doesn't need to appeal to mass democracy. It doesn't need to worry about them. Yeah. So, so, so their proletariat finds themselves more atomized and less able to coordinate and all that. There being Russia's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Versus the social democracy movement in Germany, which has actually been encouraged to make these, like, political inroads and stuff and, and coordinating and everything by the ruling class thinking, oh, yeah, we're just getting these, you know, working class rubes to work for us. <laughs> okay. What does Rosa think about this? Does she think that's good or just that it's different and it's a neutral observation? I think she thinks it's a neutral observation initially, uh, but she thinks that Lenin's way of handling it is bad. So she kind of sympathizes with it. She's like, okay, yeah, I get it. Things are different and it's not working. You know, it doesn't shake out well for your country if things are just different but you have to follow Marx's outline because when the hell are you going to get your country free it's going to take a while because everything sucks there it looks like so she kind of I think sympathetically portrays okay yeah Lenin the Bolsheviks say let's go and do the damn thing faster than we should be able to do right like let's let's cut a few corners Let's get the group together. Let's let's make the Vanguard Party happen. You know, classic, what we're talking about, revolutionary Bolshevik sort of theory, right? Yeah. But her argument is that this basically goes too far. I don't think she fully says this don't is bad. It. Yeah. But she kind of like turns it and says, I get what you're trying to do. But you're really introducing dangerous elements. So for Rosa, uh, the thing is that the is the within the party discipline. So we were talking earlier about 
or I guess in the last episode, about the notion of democratic centralism being that you had to have this pretty rigorous party discipline, you know, before you make the decisions, spout off at the mouth about anything, right? <laughs> I mean, who the fuck are you to tell me any, you know, like, really, <laughs> like, let's, yeah, let's do the argument. But then once it's decided, you really have to go to it. And Rosa does not like that aspect of it. I, uh, in addition, she kind of argues that, because I don't think it's just like the after that decision-making process, it's more like the whole hierarchical nature of the party. So she kind of critiques that too. Uh, one of the charges she levels at Lenin is that he wants the central committee of the whole party to be able to appoint people to all these different party posts. And she's like, that's bullshit. That sucks. Yeah, that does kind of suck. I read that. I mean, I did read like half of the first part of this reading. So I did read that. And I was like, yeah, that's a little bit sus. Like, why do you need to do that? Well, yeah, she describes it as pitiless centralism. <laughs> like just fuck you, assholes. We're making the decision. You know, I, however, do like that in her initial characterization and stuff, when she brings this up, she's like, Lenin, who is a... I don't want to mince words here. Badass motherfucker. He's yeah. super cool. I disagree with him like 100%. But like, he's he's like, great. He's great. You should talk to him. <laughs> At first, I wasn't sure because she writes he's an outstanding member of the Isker group. And I'm like, does that mean he's missing? Like he's... Oh, like, like he's he gone. <laughs> yeah. Or is he like outstanding and she likes him? No, yeah. It, it was totally talking up. Because okay. um, sometimes she's talking about like his clever, you know, whatever, and all this stuff. Yeah, no, she's she's like fanboying him, kind of, but like also burning him, like she doesn't like. Interesting. Him. So she's Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> early Twitter here, early X thread, <laughs> or what have you. One thing she raises here is because remember Rosa refers to the communist socialist movement or whatever as the social democracy. Like that's yes. the terminology used. And this is just sort of a German translation thing. She says it tends towards centralization, which okay. I think is an interesting notion to grapple with, uh, mainly because uh, she says that it deals with the concerns of the whole working class compared to just local interests, basically. It does kind of combine... Workers from all over into this general working class interest. And so in that way, it is less local and more national or more international. So she also compares it to the Blanqui, which who, who are those? Yeah, so that's an interesting angle too. the Blanqui or the Blanquiists uh, were followers of this guy named Blanqui. I want to say he was Louis Blanqui, but let's see. It sounded French as hell, so sounds right to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Louis Auguste Blanqui. <laughs> That's extremely French. Yeah. He was a French socialist, political activist. He was, like, in jail. I think the Paris Commune mm. guys demanded that he be released or something along those lines. Okay, okay. He was, in some ways, people refer to him as, like, a prototype of Lenin. and Because he thought that the way to bring about a socialist revolution was to have a 
dedicated core of revolutionaries who knew what the fuck to do. They were smart enough. They could, they could figure it out. And that all they needed was to convince people to do what they wanted them to do. And they could carry this off. They don't have to tell anyone anything besides like, hey, be there at the dead drop. Yeah. Go over here and do that. Again, more of a top-down structure. Yeah. 100% top-down. Whereas I think the analogy falls apart is where, you know, if you look at Lenin and stuff and the Bolsheviks and stuff, like these guys were, you know, what? They had a book club for a while. They had, you know, mass meetings and stuff. They had a party organization beyond a core group of conspirators who were... I I don't think that analogy holds up all the way. But was it that... I I guess I would wonder, coming from maybe Rose's perspective of how are those things divided? Is it still seen as the core group are like the educators and the leaders and everyone else is there to learn? Uh, If it's coming from the outside in, yes, 100%. That's definitely how it looks. I think that even within the party structure, this is one of the fundamental divides of the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks is. Mensheviks say we should have more of a loose party structure and, you know, plan things in in en masse and more regular. I think the Mensheviks had not grappled with the situation in Russia. As much as the Bolsheviks had. And so this is where I would have it out with, with Luxembourg is saying, what do you want them to do? Because they are in a secret police state, right? They're, they're, they're somewhere where, like, you have the American level of policing, like cops are rampant. But they're all also connected with the CIA, also connected with the NSA. All, everything is, like, so it's like a, a perfect panopticon sort of nation. And... In that environment, what sort of a... uh, Like, you can't rent a meeting hall and talk about your feelings for, you know, the whole day. Like in in Reds, you know, like that gets busted up. I mean, it gets busted up in the movie, too, several times. But this one will (laughs) not even get off the ground. No, but there's, yeah, (laughs) there's one of the famous, like, kind of uh, high-ranking, really, Bolsheviks at the time that a number of the party members are like, dude... This guy's working for the Okrana. He's he's working for the Tsar's secret police and everything. Lenin goes to bat for this guy a number of times. And no, no way. It, it turns out that he's kind of he is kind of a secret police guy and kind of not. Like there's such a gray area and like it's all so fucked up in that way. It's also paranoid. Yeah, that it's like, how are you going to open this up and say? Let's make sure this is a mass democratic movement among anyone who wants to participate. Yeah, I don't think you can afford to do that in those circumstances. It's almost like when we talk about like daydreaming about the commune or whatever it is that we're talking about, but like the circumstances change your choices so much that it's really hard to come in from the outside and from like Rosa admits a different set of circumstances and like be judgy about it. Yeah, that's. One of the reasons we like to self-criticize ourselves because, you know, we, we get into like, oh, you know, how big are the dormitories going to be in the philanthropy? <laughs> and we don't know because we don't know how, you know, what section, what, you know, how much of the wing, the dormitory wing is going to be actually devoted to military training and stuff. Because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the capitalist assholes are going to come and besiege us. 
Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. There's so much that has to be figured out in the moment. Uh, to get back to that critique, basically, uh, Luxembourg says, Lenin, you're too conspiratorial. You know, you want only you and your homies to know what's going on. And she's like, that's insufficient, basically, because uh, the masses are where it really is. She says, basically, there cannot be a barrier between the party and the regular workers. At some point, she does this quote of saying, like, uh, that Lenin says, oh, we should kind of be like the Blanquist, except we're attached to the proletariat. She's like, we shouldn't be attached. We're not like a thing. We're the same thing. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we're the same. We should be of them, by them, for them, with them, organically. Man, I'm really torn because I agree with that in theory. But again, I don't know how you get to that in those circumstances. Unless you're willing to just like, hey, we're all going to go together to get mowed down in front of the Tsar's palace. Like, we're going to lose like half the people. But hey, <laughs> we're going to take over. Yeah, my, my thinking on this is Rosa's expressing this. Rosa Luxemburg's expressing this from a, from from Germany. You know, and from a different historical perspective. But if you put her on the ground in Russia with these thoughts and things, I think you end up coming closer to something that we've seen work in history. So when she comes out and says basically, okay, yeah, we shouldn't just have this conspiratorial core. We need the active participation of the workers, right? They, they, they have to be able to figure out what they're going to do in the struggle. They cannot be just mindlessly taking orders from the party. Uh, they, they have to have this element of building their own capacity for spontaneous action. To me, what, what that harkens to is one of my favorite things is the mass line. I mean, this is, this is, this is mobilization of regular people who are directly affected by the struggle saying here's what we think we should do and then you know Mao kind of cleverly put kind of puts himself between Luxembourg and, and Lenin and yeah. says it's not just going to be the the masses figuring it out and it's not just going to be the vanguard party saying this is how we should do it it's going to be a dialogue between the two saying like here's what we think we should do here's what you need like that sort of synthesis, you know, part of why, why I think his thought process there is great is because it marries the two. It's, it's best of both worlds. I think. Yeah. Dang. Once again, leaning towards Maoism, (laughs) (laughs) but I guess credit from, from my point of view, credit goes to Luxembourg here too. I think it's easier for the revolutionary to see things from the revolutionary's point of view. And I think the, Opposite impulse of saying, what about the masses? The masses need to be in the driver's seat is the, like the better angel that needs to be kind of pulling at us. And I think that's the role Luxembourg is playing in this dialogue versus Lenin kind of saying like, fuck it, let's do the damn thing, which we all feel like that's, that's in our heart. Like that's, (laughs) that's what we want to do, but it's harder, I think, you know, to, to rein in. Yeah, I I agree. I I think with, anarchists they often play that role of like hey you didn't think about this and Mm -hmm. like it can be frustrating and be like hey you're splitting the party or whatever but i think it's a needed role like i'd rather have them than not yeah yeah and we'll we'll kind of talk about emma goldman here in a bit but I, i think that impulse plays a vital role and that's 
you know, again, just you know, doing doing my usual malice thing is I think that's that's where when you go back to that uh, dialogue with the masses, that's where you're going to get regular people expressing that regular impulse for freedom, for liberty, for you know, be, being a person, a human, a fully individualized you know being. Yeah. That you're going to get that kind of feedback of like, hey, bro, I don't, I do not want to be regimented all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Another thing in Luxembourg's discussion was this idea of discipline. At some point, she kind of contrasts what she thinks that workers should have in terms of a discipline that she says is a freely assumed self-discipline versus a toe-the-party-line discipline. Okay, and she would be more in favor of the first one, yeah. I assume. So there's two parts. You have to have a working class that is class-conscious. We're the working class. We're going to fight for our own rights because that's what classes do. That's what you need. <laughs> uh, but you also have to have a political situation where they are free enough to actually advocate for that. So they can vote. They can campaign. They can run for office. They, they have all these like regular ass bourgeois sort of things of working people can do this. They have like publications and things like that. Yeah. And democracy broadly has spread far enough to where Ordinary people can affect the political process to scale, uh, to the scale of how what their number is. So, therefore, working class parties and interests should be expressed at a greater number because if you've democratized your society enough, they're the majority. You know, I they mean, sh- they should be able to do it. You're going to be waiting a long fucking time. I mean, even now, like you don't have that now. And I, I don't think she was rosy-eyed about this. I think what she's saying is that Germany was further along the road in that regard than Russia was. So what she's saying is, in Germany, the ruling powers, because she, she's still pretty clear about it, that we don't have full-on democracy. I mean, it's still there's still a state and interests and stuff like that. But the, the, the ruling powers have conceded enough Again, in pursuit of their own power, they, they think they're just going to marshal the working classes into backing their own, you know, a high pop or lower or low pop or higher of their <laughs> thing, you know, that they've conceded enough to, to give enough ground to to give the workers enough space to agitate effectively for their own liberation in that kind of broad social democratic movement, right? It's not necessarily demo- like like a ballot box. She's not really mm-hmm. saying that. No, no. She's just saying like the workers have enough autonomy to organize themselves yeah, instead start, of having yeah. a vanguard do it for them. And that's what she's saying. Russia's in this in this boxed in situation where since they don't have any of those freedoms, they need so, you know, that it makes sense, I guess she's saying. It makes sense for Lenin to say, let's take a shortcut. Let's not mm-hmm. let's not get those freedoms going so that people let's let's just I'm gonna I'm gonna bring the light to them. I'm gonna show them the way and then we're gonna do that. Yeah, I mean I'm just really curious, like given today's context, like what 
capitalist country would allow that to happen. <laughs> would allow socialist revolution to ferment. Yeah, would allow workers to get class consciousness, would allow workers to develop political parties and unions. Like, we see that shit being shut down left and right here. Oh, yeah. Lest viewers and listeners, you, I mean, you could be viewing, you're just looking at your phone. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> lest you need to be reminded about 2020 in Iowa, there's a little, mm. a little that fix was, that was dialed in. That was a cute little moment of quote unquote democracy. And that was, a, that was again, someone who was a soft social Democrat. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I love the guy. <laughs> I mean, like. Yeah, I love him. Bless his heart. Yeah, damn near as good as he can do within the American political system. But <laughs> it got shut down. What is that? So fucking fast. And yeah, and just oof, annihilated. Yeah, I just if we're waiting for that to happen, I think we're we're gonna die <laughs> before that happens. The planet will die before that happens. Before we're given enough rights to do something. I agree. I also want to add in here. I do not think that. Luxembourg was saying we should wait. I think mm. she's purely offering a different, like an analysis of the different conditions. Okay. And not a normative thing. Just saying, here's, here's where we are in Germany. You know, this is good. I'm glad that we're here instead of there, but here's what they are in, in Russia. Okay. The, I guess the sticking point then comes with what's the prescription for going forward. So, she kind of says that the Russian social democratic movement basically needs to do a two-stage. It needs to do a bourgeois revolution, and then it needs to do a socialist revolution. It has to play out in that way because of that development of the rights that she was talking about, is that you essentially have to increase the political involvement of the working class in that bourgeois stage. So, yeah, you know, you have to get rid of the, the feudal, the, the semi-feudal feudal thing and the czar and all that stuff. And then in that transitionary period, you have to democratize. I mean, you have to, the Soviets and the and the, the Bolsheviks, they, they're going to be out there pushing for the maximum the whole time. But what they're going to eke out in her analysis of this is they're going to eke out democratic reforms that give them gradually more and more power to organize and then to actually seize power in the general strike, which is an element of what the Russian revolution ends up being is, you know, all that strike action and stuff. But that's, that's how they're rather than cutting the corner and saying, we're going to have a dedicated core that doesn't need the democratic rights. We're just going to take the power and then give, you know, set everybody on the road to socialism. Gotcha. So it's like more of an orthodox Marxist, I think, take on how it should unfold. I mean, gosh, I mean, that's going to take a long time. Revolutions ain't short. I mean, even a bourgeois one, like that takes a while. Yeah, I. <laughs> that's one of the interesting things about it, because when doing this reading and reading about, well, you know, doing some of Emma's reading and stuff as well, it's... Trying not to hindsight it, it's mm -hmm. easy to see myself saying, yeah, you should do it like the right way. Like, <laughs> I mean, is it really like good if you started out in a shitty way and stuff? And 
I think about this a, a lot in the historical context or whatever is I would like to picture myself, even if I come at it from this particular angle of, oh, we have to do it this way or we have, you know, this, this is this is how I'd want to see things happen, is that I would hope in the in the moment that I would be wise enough as, say, Trotsky was when when he found himself on the Menshevik side and the Bolsheviks were actually going to be the ones about to carry out the revolution. He so said, he dropped his shit and he's like, all right, I'm in. Yeah. He said, I'm Bolshevik. Now you Mensheviks will find yourself in the ash heap of history. <laughs> and I mean, he, he literally was like 24 hours ago, a Menshevik. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You have to be able to do that. I think, I mean, like you have to be able to, to change to what's actually, what's really right. And it's, it's, it's hard hindsight wise to say, Oh, that would have been me. Maybe you would have actually been this pedantic, you know, sort of, oh, it has to be done this way sort of thing. I think it's especially hard in today's culture that is so steeped in making an identity out of your beliefs and and feeling like you can't change your mind. You know, like people have their receipts on you. And so it's really hard to admit like, yeah, I changed my mind. Like, yeah, (laughs) that shouldn't be a big deal. That should be like good i'm glad you changed your mind not oh you're fucking fake or whatever <laughs> yeah exactly no that's so the the regular person term for that is being a human being uh-huh. uh you're you grew good job listeners you all have the receipts on us go to episode one you're gonna hear us start now <laughs> all right uh and i i've i've I was flamed in the reviews for having this position or that position or whatever. And same. <laughs> I agree kind of in some yeah. ways because, because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I did. I did kind of grow. I mean, I think, I think I've, I think I've developed a better position that maybe, you know, 20 years from now, I'll look back on it. It's like, Oh, that was okay. That was better than where you started, but it's, you know, not as good as I am now. It's a Kropotkin, Maybe, or Prodon, I think it's Prodon, the one that said that I hope the future generations execute me as a reactionary. He said, <laughs> you should hope that you're yeah. growing in that way of like getting better views, getting better uh, conceptions of how you can take action. If you're not, what are you doing? And it's not, uh, let me be clear, it's not like, let me be clear, it's not the <laughs> cancerous mindset of, of eternal growth of of capitalism whatever but i think no. that humans should always be not necessarily trying to perfect ourselves but trying to live our best selves and, and live in a way that is in most accordance with our beliefs with what makes us you know centers us makes us happy that sort of thing yeah yeah i think there's a real i don't know what it is and sorry if we're veering too much into shooting the shit territory <laughs> but it's what we do here. But it's it's like there is a real sense of I think we thought we were supposed to crystallize into adults one day yeah. and then be the same person forever. I don't know, that's just cuz like you know, we didn't have a ton of older people in our lives growing up like us in particular. We just saw our parents as like kind of static even though they weren't looking back. Mm-hmm. We I wonder if celebrity culture has something to do with that, of, like, you see a person, like, kind of not age, and so you just think, well, that's the same person forever. (laughs) So 
I don't know. I just, I think it's interesting that like, I think young adults, especially people in their 20s, early 20s are not prepared for how much life is going to change. And they think, oh, no, I'm going to be like this forever, or it's going to be like this forever. And they freak out. I am including myself in this category. (laughs) Uh, Brands. Brands, I think, have Mm. such a huge thing, such a huge component of that when you look at the social media aspect of it anyways, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and celebrity aspect of it is... How are you going to just up and change your brand? You know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think social media for sure. Like you have to be in a niche. Yeah. If you're in a big enough, if you yourself, I guess, are big enough to, to sway that, then you can have your own eras, Taylor Swift style, right? Mm-hmm. You can be like, well, this is, I'm going to be this now. And, and that's fine. You can, you can totally yeah. kind of internally that revamp that and it's fine. But a lot people have this conception of, I've got to be this. Like I have to I, be in a box. Yeah, I have to be an archetype. Like this person mm-hmm. is this thing, and that's them. And Eat that's, me. <laughs> yeah. And it's limiting. That's not all the case. Yeah, like, you're gonna change. It's fine. And the thing is, you were a regular person, so it's fine to do like whatever you want. Very mm-hmm. few people. That's called the spotlight effect. Very few people are watching you. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So one, one of the psych 101 things is you think everybody's watching you? They're not. They're nope. think about the last <laughs> time that you ever gave a class presentation in college and high school, whatever. You thought everybody's fucking looking at me. I'm fucking nervous as shit. But when you were sitting there through your classmates thing, you didn't give a fuck what they were talking about. You were doing you were, anything else to yeah. besides pay attention. They were doing the same thing to you. So so don't worry about what people think. In that God regard. Dear, I'm speaking to a college later this week. I'd like to pretend that they're going to listen to me. <laughs> yeah. I, don't picture them nude. It's more distracting than it is. No, helpful. they're probably very but. hot young college students. No, thanks. Uh, yeah, let's let's bring it back to our home turf. People who put a lot more time into studying marks than we have <laughs> delineate between an early and a late marks. That's they, very true. They, they say, here's young marks and here's older marks. Here, here's... You know, kind of immature, idealistic sort of, you know, just coming off of Hegelianism marks. Mm-hmm. And then here's like more, uh, some of them do this humanist materialist divide. But like even I think the more nuanced take is that he's still very humanist in his late work. But it's it's definitely more informed by the material conditions and stuff. And like how does that allow someone to develop into the human? So uh, th- there's there's that evolution with Marx, you know, with Lenin, there's a lot of facilitating between like, oh, we should take this tactic. No, we should take this. And it depends on the material circumstances. I mean, like he's, I think his consistency is whatever the fuck works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But (laughs) that's the thing is, I mean, in today's world, maybe he'd struggle more because, you know, all your receipts are there in in the internet to pull back up. But I don't know. Don't get bogged down with that shit. It's the long and the short of it. (laughs) Yes. Growth is good. Back to Rosa. What's she saying? One of the big things for Rosa, I think that stood out to me was how fucking rowdy she wanted the uh, workers of the workers movement to be like, she wanted to be rowdy as fuck. Okay. So she kind of pictured Lenin's workers movement as like the revolution of the hall monitors. Like these guys are lame ass (laughs) mugs. Okay. Versus cool Rosa Luxemburg 
workers that are like punks, you know, like they're like, fuck yeah, we're going to do this. So a couple of elements, I guess the first thing she talks about, we mentioned earlier, the freely assumed self-discipline, which she contrasts with the discipline of capitalism and the discipline of the central committee, right? So her Mm. kind of personification of kind of the Soviet discipline or whatever. Uh, And she says, Instead, like kind of our self-discipline will be a result of extirpating to the last root old habits of obedience and servility. Interesting. I mean, even the language around like association and stuff like that's extremely anarchist. Like, that's mm-hmm. very much Kropotkin. That's very much Emma Goldman of, of free, free association. association. Yeah. yeah. And I, I like the discipline like the self-discipline that would come from it's like this monk movement almost of like i'm going to get rid of the parts of me that are still like like fall into accidentally obedience to tradition or servility to you know the old hierarchy or the way things feel comfortable it's like no 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 fuck all that like we have a policeman in our brain that we're trying to get rid of. Is that, that's that's what she's kind of talking about here, of this. Uh, she's she's like basically saying we're going to build some rebels. Like we want people to say, "Fuck you! Who are you telling me what to do?" You know. We want questions. We want to be pushed back. Yeah, Luxembourg kind of contrasts what she's advocating for against Lenin, and says, you know. Lenin saying, oh, look at all we've done. Look at these great, you know, great fucking things. We're this big social democratic movement in Russia. All right. She's saying, well, how do movements like ours, like the social democratic movement in Russia, like in Germany, how do we actually progress? What's the real mechanism? And she says, it's not via the party leadership in either case. Party leadership is always dragging behind whatever real membership and real people on the ground are doing. Like mm. That's the, the actual workers. Spontaneous action by them is what actually gets shit done. Interesting. So completely flipping it on its head. Yeah. She essentially takes an anti-Bolshevik position and says... Totally. ...that the spontaneous action of working people on the ground is what makes revolutionary actions possible and that the party in basically all cases is always trailing that trying to catch up with that and in addition is uh, ends up forming a sort of conservative force saying how can we harness that into uh, and how can we kind of use that to to protect workers rights and protect what we may have won in the spontaneous action and, and, and build upon that for the future. But you know, that, that sort of thing of like consolidating, I guess. That's interesting. I wonder if that's again, just a perspective coming from where she's at in Germany, where you do have such radical parties and stuff happening in comparison to the government. Whereas in Russia, like, you know, peasants can't read. You know, like, that's just like, that's not to say that they don't have ideas and thoughts and feelings, but like, it's going to be very hard for them to communicate those and organize those in a meaningful way. Yeah, I concur with you here is 
in Germany, it makes total sense. Like, y'all have a fucking socialist party. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in her experience, you know, when you have a fairly literate working class and everything, and a fair, and a incredibly, like, radicalized working class and stuff. I mean, like, this, was, this was widespread and industrialized and stuff. Like that. You know, that was inculcated like all throughout it was it was it was permeated throughout the working class it was like the place to be if you're into that shit that's why marx thought they were going to pop off first you know yeah <laughs> i don't know enough i guess about movements on the ground today but i would be curious <laughs> on the numbers i guess like it doesn't feel like every person i run into is more radical it feels like every person i, I mean i live in texas so hard to fucking say <laughs> <laughs> so I think everyone is a little more radical than they think they are. Like once you actually talk to them, they're like, Oh yeah, you fucking agree with me. You just don't know the right words. Yeah. There's a huge disparity in that, I guess. <laughs> like, I think I could talk someone into like hating their boss within five minutes. Like, I, I could get them to say those words very easily and be like, wouldn't it be cool to get rid of your boss? Like I could get someone to agree with that. Yeah. And not on a personal level, like mm-hmm. fuck your boss, but like, you can get people basically to say it's unfair the way it's unfair to my boss and unfair to me mainly the way this works but yeah it's it the the whole like the yeah the 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 crazy myriad uh you know the labyrinth that we all came through to pop up on the other side where they're my boss and i'm their employee all that was unfair to all of us at all steps stages of the way <laughs> like yeah like literally talk to anyone about like their workplace problems and like i can almost guarantee the issue is management and the issue with that behind that is like capitalism yeah. so it's pretty easy to get people there they're going to come up with a system of soviets of workers council so <laughs> we should be in charge <laughs> we and- should uh just find a way to harness that just essential dissatisfaction with jobs i mean that's what unions are but like we should radicalize our unions even further the one time where the united states was faced with a country that based itself on let's have workers councils and you know and this shit be an integral integral part of the government and all that we didn't have one red scare. We had two. <laughs> and we had an entire segment of the like of world history called the Cold War. Where, yeah, we freaked like, the fuck out. <laughs> we pulled a Germany. Because <laughs> we're like, holy shit. We, don't want we our- cannot <laughs> do that. <laughs> Workers cannot be in charge. It was, uh, yeah, astounding. So uh, coming back to the question here. I think Luxembourg has a good idea that in a lot of situations, spon- the you know the spontaneous actions and stuff of the workers can play a revolutionary role. I think that she uh, kind of accurately portrays the situation in Germany, but kind of then underplays the situation in Russia, where, like you said, the historical conditions are just not there. Like they needed a kickstart. She kind of goes on to say that Lenin's idea of centralism, you know, his focus on let's make sure that the party is in control centrally at a national level and all that. She thinks that this is going to end up being like the Social Democratic Party in Germany, a conservative constraint on workers initiative. She says she's kind of extrapolating the situation in Germany and everything of, of their political 
party that arose from the workers' movement that ended up ending up being kind of like a reformist and kind of bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I mean that does happen, and I would argue part of why that does happen is because you spent the time trying to win a bourgeois thing in a bourgeois way. Like, guess what? You turn a little bit bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe if you're a vanguardist party still fighting a revolution, there's no really nothing to go in for that's bourgeois. You're mm-hmm. just trying to take down the fucking czar and, <laughs> and then the provisional government. But like, you're you don't definitely, have to play their game. Yeah, at no point are you saying, oh, please vote us for the provisional council. Like, it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Man, I sound like I really am hating on her. <laughs> one dumb thing i think that (laughs) lenin ends up saying here so you know i mean lenny even lenny strikes sometimes Uh, (laughs) lenny i didn't like this latest paper you wrote (laughs) she's criticizing him in this pamphlet says one step forward two steps back Mm -hmm. was very boring very (laughs) particular too very much like oh i'm calling out this one little group and it's like uh who <laughs> petty time petty yeah. shit uh yeah this was his burn book although i think he actually had you know more of a burn book at some point i don't know <laughs> he kind of argues in this that the tendency for federalism or anti-centralism right the the sort of mind that does not like centralism that says, oh, I should be able to do what I want. I should have complete freedom, what have you. Lenin argued this is an, a form of opportunism that is brought about by a bourgeois psychology. Interesting. So much as Marx wrote about the bourgeois intellectuals mm-hmm. that would break away from their class interests to join the proletarian, just like by basis of being smart enough to figure it out or like, you know, good enough to figure it out and say, well, I want to be on the side of the oppressed, you know. While there is a soul in prison, I am not free. It's a bourgeois intellectual. Uh, Lenin kind of takes this tack and says, yeah, there's 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 bourgeois tendency in some people that drives them to this sort of hyper-independence and, and doesn't allow themselves the good proletarian virtue of, like, working-class discipline. I, hmm, okay, I'm really curious, because I had some of those reactions when I read Emma's stuff of a lot of the language felt familiar, because like, we are in such an individualistic culture. And a lot of it had has been used to like really bad means, which she talks about as well. But my initial reaction that was like, Oh, I don't know. So I, I don't know, I think it's a question of maybe intent of yeah, that, that language can definitely be used to hold you back and to hold the movement back. But it can also be an important question to raise in terms of individual rights. I don't know. We'll get to it with Emma. Yeah. So you're Put saying... Put a pin in that. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying with Lenin, maybe Luxembourg had a point? Maybe, yeah. Because I think individualism can certainly have a bourgeois origin, and can have bourgeois intent, but I don't necessarily think it is always bad and is always of bourgeois origin and bourgeois intent. I think it can come from a place of 
hey, I'm I'm just checking in here. This seems a little fucked up. Like it can f- serve as a check on power. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe where Luxembourg's coming from because it's she gets in a little bit into the weeds, I think, but essentially she kind of critiques Lennon here and says the opportunism we're talking about and like the the kind of like fucked upness of the thought pattern. So that's a translation thing. Whenever mm. communists are saying X, Y, and Z faction or whoever I don't like are opportunists. <laughs> all we're saying is that they are fucked up in some way. Like they, mm, they have okay, a fucked up take. Yeah. Okay. This is a dog water take. And here's why. Like, okay. That's, that's what they're saying. She, she says, okay, well that's messed up that he says this, that it comes from a bourgeois psychology because she says, it's not about, you know, that, that, oh, they were born into this class or it was like, we were talking about with Mao, right? Like, is this, uh, no, this was Castro. Is the son of a communist communist? Like, exactly. Fucking, I hope so, but <laughs> God willing. <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, what's the bourgeois psychology? Is that just going to be passed down? Not necessarily. Uh, she says class interest, you know, like opportunism comes from class interest. And so, okay, it's not about inherently centralization or decentralization. It's not about like, oh, is it all going to be decided through the party hierarchy or is it going to be decided at the economy level? That's not necessarily a question of opportunism or not. What she says is whatever fucks up the working class, <laughs> whatever's worse for people, uh, whatever's like going to change the movement from good to a shitty tool of the bourgeoisie, whatever's going to corrupt it, that's opportunism. And so she says, okay, and, and that's kind of closer to what I was saying. Is like leftists just say opportunism is one of your fucking things. Yeah, yeah. And so she says, if we look at it that way, if we look at it as, you know, if, if you, whatever you're interpreting, it, if it fucks things up, you're an opportunist, then hey, maybe Lenin is the real <gasps> opportunist. Whoa, why? She says, it is by extreme centralization that a young, uneducated proletarian movement can be most completely handed over to the intellectual leader staffing a central committee. If we assume the viewpoint claimed as his own by Lenin, and we fear the influence of intellectuals in the proletarian movement, we can conceive of no greater danger to the Russian party than Lenin's plan of organization. Nothing oh, will sh- more shit. surely enslave a young labor movement to an intellectual elite hungry for power than this bureaucratic straitjacket, which will immobilize the movement and turn it into an automaton manipulated by a central committee. On the other hand, there is no more effective guarantee against opportunist intrigue and personal ambition than the independent revolutionary action of the proletariat, as a result of which the workers acquire the sense of political responsibility and self-reliance. Okay, she kind of has a good point because Lenin's all like, you fucking intellectual nerds, and then proceeds to fill his government with intellectual nerds. <laughs> like, like, you will be ruled over by intellectual nerds. Yeah. <laughs> but my kind of nerds. And a couple of bank robbers. I mean, you just see. a few for color. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sick fucking burn. Yeah. I think she has a point. I don't know. What, what, to what point do you think she has a degree or where do you think she falls short or how, how do you come out on this 
I I kind of agree in some ways. I think the bureaucratization of things can lead to a lack of humanity and a lack of really listening because you get so caught up in process. I am reminded of this uh, dystopian, well, it was originally written as utopian, if you can fucking believe it, uh, novel by uh, B.F. Skinner, a famous psychologist. It's called Walden 2. And the behaviorist guy? Yeah, yeah. Crazy rat guy. Uh, <laughs> he, he's got like a couple of chapters in uh, Surveillance Capitalism about him. And he writes about this society where, you know, it's essentially a panopticon of, you know, they know everything about you. But like the idea, and you see this in liberalism a lot too, that the idea is all the laws are defined by experts and mm. it's all science-based. We've reduced everything about the human experience into science and observable data. And so that way we can do what is best for the entire population and not just the individual. And yeah. when you hear things like central committee and five-year plans and things like that, it's not the same. It's not the same. I'm not being fucking George Orwell Hill, like maybe, you know? Yeah. But... I can see a, a, a small parallel. And that's, I don't know, that's what we're saying about, like, the historical conditions and stuff of, like, this song I've cited a couple of times. You know, uh, I, the last time I cited it, I was talking about the you know, fear shook the wealthy like thieves caught out in their crime. The song mm-hmm. of the old communist. Uh, another line in that uh, is that the the five-year plan was a vision of plenty mm-hmm. for us who had known nothing, you know, who had only known the dole. But yeah, for for the you know the bourgeois westerner, right? The the regular imperial core person, the five-year plan it, it falls into the same it falls in the same category as for us in our history, uh, the ration books of World War II. Yeah, which is like it's kind of brave and kind of good, and it's kind of like. Good job, like you did your part, but it sucks. Nobody like, wants it, to do it. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's why it was brave because it sucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for a country that was coming out of widespread famines, I mean, like they had multiple famines, you know, per decade and stuff, all through all of the czar's years, and then they have like two famines, and they're done with famines. Once the Soviet Union takes over, like they, they they prioritize, you know, and they have literacy rates of bullshit. And then they're like, no, we're going to fucking teach people how to read the healthcare, all this stuff. Like it's, it's, it's revamped and, and, and yeah, you don't have all of the material things that you would have in the West, but you didn't have those before. You didn't have anything before. So Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I don't mean to sound fucking no, anti-communist. That's obviously not what I'm doing. For sure. <laughs> but I I think I'm I'm very excited to get to Emma's work because she really made me think. And she really made me wrestle in the gray area of, of nuance for a bit. And I, I think Rosa does too. I wish I had read more of it than I did. But hey, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, she just makes a lot more references that I don't know about. So it's just harder to get through. And I just... I didn't have time for that shit today. No worries. Uh, we are kind of at that transition point, so we can go ahead and hop okay. over to Emma Goldman's The Individual Society and the State. 
Wonderful. So this jumps forward quite a bit in time to 1940. What I like about this reading is the questions it brought up in me because she she comes out very strongly condemning, obviously, fascism, but also condemning Mm. Bolshevism. Boo for you. (laughs) (laughs) Boo for a different reason. (laughs) And, and, you know, as well as parliamentarianism and, and democracy. And she frames individualism as like the sole defining beacon of progress in humanity. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if I agree. And it made me really, and it's funny because she like almost predicted a lot of my like ick factor. You know, Mm -hmm. she's like, I'm not talking about rugged individualism. That's bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, okay, good. Cause we know that's bullshit. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I have very mixed feelings about this. Um, on the one hand, I can kind I can see where she's coming from. She's making claims of, you know, it's the individuals, you know, the the people who can kind of she calls them even seers, you know, like they're they're so ahead of their time. They're pulling society forward and things like that. Whether it's through inventions or art or whatever it is, and it's you know, the state or society that's holding them back. And uh, I'm going to sound really wishy-washy here. And and I think it's a mix of both. I I think I do still have, and I think she gets to there eventually. Like she talks a lot about, you know, free association and everything, but like, I think you can be very individual and very like, you know, pushing forward and, and innovating and whatever, but there should still be a community aspect to it. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm reading it all wrong, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess I saw both sides of it. Yeah. Um, there's a, I don't know, to me that read is fairly archaic, bourgeois, however you want to put it, in the sense that it's not, uh, from my experience, well, I should say from the immense amount of firsts that the Soviets racked up in the space race, it doesn't <laughs> seem that... Uh, collectivism uh dampens yeah mankind's capacity for inventing for for seeing for being (laughs) visionaries in any sort of scientific sense yeah and and i think i struggled with it too of you know we kropotkin has talked about this too of every great inventor scientist any sort of innovator stands on the shoulders of giants before him of all the people who did the work before so like cool, you're an individual and you came up with, you know, a new way to look at the atom, but like, guess who helped you? Like everybody else who did that before. Yeah. And, you know, in her defense, maybe she's saying, yeah, you do, you know, people did help you before, but you need a society that's free enough to, to let you, you know, go down whatever avenues you want and, and explore and, and, and not be confined to doing a particular thing, I guess. Not saying that's, I don't know, that's not what the Soviets are really about. It's just, fuck you, you're going to do this, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think I struggled with this reading because in some ways it was very, I mean, it was very well written, very easy to read, and Mm -hmm. very persuasive. Like, I found myself being like, man, maybe she's right, like, a few times. And, you know, there were some really beautiful parts about, like, basically, like, everyone is their own universe. And I believe that. Like, that's wonderful. That's what makes humans so interesting and cool. But 
I also believe community is very cool and working together is very cool. And she's not against that, but like, it, I think she spends, I don't know, maybe she gets too hung up on the definitions. Like at what point for her does it become, stop being community and, and free association and start becoming an apparatus, which she's clearly against, you know? Yeah. Like she, she doesn't just rag on the state, she rags on society. <laughs> yeah. So, like, at what point does it become that? What what point is it, you know, it's almost like the dispossessed. Like, at what point are you being controlled by social norms? I think it's impossible that's, to tell. Yeah, so that's that's where the debate comes in <laughs> with the social norms. I think anything beyond that is easy to delineate of, well, there's not a, there's not a law. There's no yeah, law. Yeah, this is a government. No. They're telling you to do X, Y, Z or not to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're sort of peaking illicitly peeking into a 101, 201 class when we've done the 401 graduate level of the dispossessed is <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's, it does a small discretion group of, yeah, well, hey, there's no law against this, but it's still like people don't do it. It's still sort of, not cool. Yeah. And, and so we're like, and they even bring they're like, we're, we're sort of restricting ourselves from this. We're sort of forming an informal government. That's okay with me, though. Maybe I'm not an anarchist anymore. Shit. Okay. Wow. Even, I, I, I don't think that even anarchists are against the notion of governing. Self. Uh, yeah, of governing a group by popular opinion. Mm-hmm. Or like popular, like, hey, you're really bad. We're going, like, you're, you're, you're out. I, I <laughs> don't think that do murders, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's essentially like the anarchist, like I think, solution to this. Based it's, it's on ostracization, subreddit, so it's just like yeah, ostracization slash, slash mob violence. I mean, if someone's yeah, bad like, enough, you know, just take like care of that shit. Self defense or what have you. I mean, I I will say like I've seen that work. I mean, so I don't remember if I told you this, but um, the last time I went to New York. Uh, I was out with my friend and his girlfriend and, uh, you know, we all look very gay and we did get harassed on the street. And this guy like spits on us and calls us all kinds of terrible names. And it's just like being really aggro. And so we duck into a bodega. It's late at night and everyone there can tell like we are distressed and they, everyone steps up. It's amazing. And I felt very safe after I got around other people there. Everyone was like, Hey, are you okay? Is that guy following you? Um, someone comes in from the street and is like, was that guy with you? Like, do you need me to check to see if he's gone? Like we were taken care of by the community so quickly. And you know what? I have not felt safe. If there was like a cop there, I would not have felt safe. (laughs) But Like people just regular ass people, just like really nice dudes just being like, Hey, like, this doesn't seem right. Let me step up and help somebody. Like, that's all it took. That's awesome. It was very cool. I mean, it's not cool that it happened. It was fucking terrifying. (laughs) I was like, wow, what a, like, we had just been like, you know, drunk at karaoke. And it's like, that's a way to sober up fucking fast. (laughs) Yeah. That's (laughs) crazy. It was nuts. But yeah, I mean, like, the idea of self-policing in a not- hierarchical way it doesn't seem insane to me when you experience something like that of just regular people stepping up and you know Kropotkin has all kinds of examples of that in the conquest of bread of like hey after a disaster guess what people do they fucking step up yeah and i think goldman's essentially offering that i think that's you know the best i think she weakens her argument 
in several places by kind of clumsily saying whether it's the Italian fascists or the Nazis or the Bolsheviks. And it's like, yeah, like, come on, man, that's not cool. You smarter than this. Like you're playing right into their fucking hands, Emma. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you know, definitely not a good move. (laughs) I agreed with you that she does a good job of the kind of humanist, this, this impulse of like, yeah, like when I'm reading this, I'm like, yeah, that is what people feel like I feel, you know, she's really good at at getting to that essential human experience in a way that I found super relatable and super interesting. Be like, oh, I feel seen. Thanks. I am a little universe. Thanks, Emma. <laughs> I am important. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think she kind of fell in line with Rosa Luxemburg about seeing the state and seeing, you know, any sort of similar organization as, as this conservative or reactionary force of like pulling people back into what has to be sort of thing. I think it can. I mean, I, I think... Again, I'm glad this is here. I'm glad these questions are being asked because I think if you get too myopic and say, okay, you know, we're only going to do, you know, we're going to go full Vulcan here and say the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, you're going to end up doing some fucked up shit. You're going to be like, okay, cool. I'm going to control like, you know, people who can get pregnant. I'm going to control their bodies because we have to control populations and we have to, you know, get more babies to be worker. You know, like you're going to do some shit that's not okay. Yeah, that's true. At some point, she says, you know, the worst of all tyranny is the tyranny of the majority or something. It's like, yeah, that could be bad. It can be. Well, I mean, it just can be bad. I mean, like, patriarchy. I mean, like, yeah, like, there's lots of if, shit. <laughs> yeah, if everyone's an asshole, then yeah, the majority rule's gonna suck. And if, like, you're a small, unprotected, you know, segment of the population, yeah, um, majority rule's going to suck. Yeah. One quite good insight I liked from her was a quote here. As a matter of fact, rugged individualism (laughs) has learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Under its guidance, the brute struggle for physical existence is still kept up. Strange as it may seem and utterly absurd as it is, the struggle for physical survival goes merrily on, though the necessity (laughs) for it has entirely disappeared. Indeed, the struggle is being continued, apparently, because there is no necessity for it. Does not so-called overproduction prove it? Is not the worldwide economic crisis an eloquent demonstration that the struggle for existence is being maintained by the blindness of rugged individualism at the risk of its own destruction? Yeah. I mean, I think she writes super well about that whole yeah. phenomenon. She, I love this line, too. America is perhaps the best representative of this kind of individualism in whose name political tyranny and social oppression are defended and held up as virtues. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, (laughs) they are. Yes, like individualists in the sense of good fucking luck out there. Like, (laughs) that's what it is. Yeah. At some point she characterizes it as such. She's like, uh, the devil take the hindmost. Right. Just, just, just fuck you. I got mine <laughs> is the, the individualist or individualism thing versus just individuality is how she contrasts being a human and appreciating your differences <laughs> and all the stuff that, you know, when you hear the, the, uh, 
you know, the cartoons and whatever. It's like, be yourself. Like, that's be what yourself. They're, they're talking about individuality. But, Not rugged individualism. Yeah, individualism is like, fuck everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you. Uh, I love it. I love that she so deftly points that difference out and the ways they are used. I mean, like, I again, this is why I was excited to get this reading is because yeah, individualism can be used to be self-serving and to be opportunistic and to be, you know, whining about like, oh, well, I didn't get more power, so this sucks. But it can also be used like for good as well. No, it's it's it is the artistic impulse. I mean, it's it's the it's the expression. It's the yes. here I am. I would like to be heard. Here's my feel. That sort of like thing that you put out there anytime you do some sort of I don't know art of any sort <laughs> my, my my internal impulse is like music of something you know but like yeah, yeah. anything you do of that way is like that's the thing that the thing that's calling out sort of is what she's talking about well what's interesting is I see it as both like I feel like I'm firmly in between these camps of of you know subsuming myself to the the community or to society and and the individualist streak like you know, our friends are very into Enneagrams, so we've all taken the test. And I, I am a four, which is an individualist. So mm, <laughs> I'm yeah. nasty. Um, all about it. <laughs> but I think about it, like, I, I think about it in terms of in terms of making art, for sure, which I hope I can do to also to help people. Like, yeah, it definitely helps me process my own shit. And like, I get such an internal sense of joy doing it. But I also, like, it's not outweighed. It's about on equal terms with me, I think, at this point in my career. It also, like, I get nice feedback from people. Like, it's it's a, like, I am trying to find that balance in my own work of, like, okay, I need to make stuff that's just for me and enjoy the process and, like, not worry about how people respond to it. But I do really enjoy connecting with people and, and teaching them and, you know, showing them new ways of thinking through art, stuff like that. And... I would make a similar case even for, for therapy, which can be seen as a very, you know, self-absorbed kind of thing of like, I'm going to talk about me for an hour every week. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, the goal is to gain a lot of self-introspection and things like that. But it also is to make you a better person, which guess what? The people in your life are going to be happy about like, oh, thank God. They're not like fucking freaking out all the time. <laughs> so yeah. I think it can be both. I think there's a desire for both individualism in the sense of this feels good for me and in the sense of this serves my community. It's like the old question of altruism is actually trying to help people or feeling mm-hmm. good because you're helping people. And like, I'm kind of like, why does it matter? Functionally, materially is the same way, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think we all crave community. That's such a human instinct. We also crave, you know, being ourselves and being unique and uh, what's it called? It's, it's some self-differentiation. Um, you want to be able to differentiate yourself from other people. Like that's totally normal. Uh, but you also want the community. Like I just, I feel like both of these takes of serving your community and doing collective action, that's extremely important. And I don't, I don't want to walk away from that. Yeah. I think, I think she raises to me, she raises the best point in this, in that passage that I initially brought up because oh, the, uh, the rugged individualism. Yeah. Uh, well, 
specifically of the enforced rugged individual, like the artificial rugged individualism that we're that we're facing of artificial market scarcities, you know, and and the fact that we're raised, as Gramsci would put it, the the common sense of our society is that there is scarcity. There's not enough to go around, and this is what they start you off with in every economics class that yes. you ever take. Yes, is. Economics is how to distribute shit, and there's not yeah. enough shit. The The main point is scarcity, is there is not enough. How do you get it to everyone? Or how do you get enough to everyone? Right? Just like, hey, I know that you, you know, your fucking dumbass brain <laughs> thinks there's enough. You know, you, you think that maybe you could just share it all. And no, hey, no, no. That's not even on the table. And Goldman's like, Kind of, maybe there, I mean, there probably is, right? <laughs> like She says it as a fact, which is very impactful. Yeah, just like, no, we, we could produce enough for everybody if we were, if that was literally our goal and not, let's produce enough for everybody with the scraps that we're left with if we allow these certain rich people to build, you know, their third and fourth mansions, their fifth and sixth yachts. You know, oh, the people also still have to pay for it. We're not going to give them out for free. No, no, no. Yeah. You know, make sure these guys have enough designer suits and then of the scraps. Can we then sell enough to people for it to be economically viable? Not just so we can have enough, but like so we can rip off enough for ourselves so to go money. buy our own, you know, second and third homes and first and second yachts it's it's just this this like ripoff game all the way down and then and then you're like well yeah like obviously you're not talking about an actual game of survival there now, obviously that's that's a game that's a game of just holding on to power but yeah that was that was the main thing i think with me and emma goldman's piece is i think she brought that out really well and aside from the weakness of can you know doing a little primitive horseshoe theory sort of stuff <laughs> Like, yeah, they're fascists. Yeah, they're communists. They're all the same. Yeah. Aside from that, I think she raised some good points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I enjoyed reading it. I don't know if I agree with everything in there, um, like you just said. But I, I think there's interesting work here. I, I do think she places a little too much emphasis on, like, wow, you know, this person is so advanced. Like, they've, you know, totally changed the game. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, like, as a student of history and, and a little bit of art history as well, like, I find that can be really reductionist and really, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, the the certain voices that get amplified, like, they get amplified for a reason, you know? Like, yeah. oftentimes they'll be like, wow, like, this is crazy. Like, you know, this guy was such a groundbreaking person. They'll be like, oh, yeah, like, a woman did the same fucking thing, you know, earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... Like, it's very common for, for those kinds of voices to not get lifted to the same level. And it, it we're in a culture that does that. And so it's really, that's not to say, like, those people didn't make contributions or whatever. But, like, I think we have to reckon with the power structures involved in individualism before we can just be like, yeah, let's fucking do it. Mm-hmm. For sure. And like you mentioned before, the shoulder of giants argument of... Mm-hmm. Where they, you know, <laughs> how do they get there? You know, how do they figure that out? Uh, what society built up the, you know, the material conditions to where they had access to the learning that they got and everything else? You know, 
I saw a really stupid headline that was about like some, (laughs) I can't find it, but it was a tweet that was basically saying that the son of some like senator or general, like super famous guy in the government was, uh, was like super famous for writing like steamy vampire fanfic or something. (laughs) (laughs) And so like someone like made the, the fake quote of like, I fought so my children could (laughs) (laughs) right vampire fanfic (laughs) it's hilarious it's amazing yeah i i hope my children can do something so so frivolous and good that's uh that's kind of a common dream of mankind you know yeah (laughs) we will eventually evolve past humanity's childhood no longer enmeshed in the struggle for survival but freed to write as much fanfic as we want. <laughs> yes. Enemies to lovers. <laughs> everything in between. <laughs> Slow mean burns. Everything. Lemons. All that shit. <laughs> what is a lemon in this context? Oh, okay. Uh, lemon is a sex scene. Okay. I uh, I mean, a slow <laughs> burn is like, it's you know, it takes a while. Uh, it takes a while. Uh, but, lemon okay. is just what you use to let people know there's gonna be there's gonna be fucking in this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so the you know you have like tasteful chapter titles and then chapter sixteen lemonade. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't want to put myself on blast in my past self, but yeah, I've named a chapter lemon before because I couldn't think of a name for it and it was just fucking. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sometimes there's no other way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now I know if I'm diving into, you know, communist tracts and Lenin's talking about, you know, <laughs> the All-Russian Social Democratic Party, you know, meeting minutes, volume three, and then volume two is, or volume four is Lemon. Lemon. Ah, then shit. they all fucked. <laughs> all right. I Skip think it's an one. older term now because now, like, most modern sites have a pretty good filter system that you can kind of... Get, get what you want and need. <laughs> mm, okay. So I don't know if it's still around, but in the early aughts, that was the term. Makes sense. <laughs> All right. Uh, so hopefully you kind of covered a small range of some critiques of democratic centralism. Not like... Not specifically, I guess, but... Yeah, just sort of its potential downsides. Or I suppose what you know, Marxist-Leninist type people should keep in mind when they're pursuing such a course. Like, how can you stay on the straight and narrow, so to speak, or not fuck up too badly? (laughs) Yeah. How do you make people feel like they're individuals and that you're respecting their individualism while still helping them be a part of your movement? It's a, I don't know. The way I come down is it's a balance. I think so, too. I think that... Yeah, my from my perspective, the fundamental organizational thing still has to be democratic centralism because mm-hmm. other, other, otherwise you're just kind of hanging out talking <laughs> or someone's telling you what to do. I mean, those are the two. Yeah. To me, it's already a compromised position. Democratic centralism is the compromise between taking strict orders from some asshole and talking all day and not doing anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think even, you know, an anarchist or or someone, you know, more on the left 
you know, in Rosa's neck of the woods would agree, like even these spontaneous actions that they're thinking about requires a certain level of organization, a certain level of decision making of like, hey, we're all going right. Like, (laughs) you have to do that, even if it is kind of this organic sort of movement, like you still have to be able to agree on like we're we're shooting at that guy right yeah the functional <laughs> That's the <bad> one yeah <laughs> okay cool well next week we'll be shooting that shit and we'll talk to you then all right uh see ya bye Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.